Welcome to the 55th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 20, Section 7. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 7. In regard to those who are not debarred by all these passages of Scripture from presuming to inveigh against the sacred ministry, as if it were a thing abhorrent from religion and Christian piety, what else do they then assail God himself, who cannot but be insulted when his servants are disgraced? These men not only speak evil of dignity, but would not even have God to reign over them. First Samuel 7, verse 7. Or if this was truly said of the people of Israel, when they declined the authority of Samuel, how can it be less truly said in the present day of those who allow themselves to break loose against all the authority established by God? But it seems that when our Lord said to his disciples, quote, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. Unquote. Luke 22, verses 25 and 26. He, by these words, prohibited all Christians from becoming kings or governors, dexterous expounders. A dispute had arisen among the disciples as to which of them should be greatest. To suppress this vain ambition, our Lord taught them that their ministry was not like the power of earthly sovereigns, among whom one greatly surpasses another. What, I ask, is there in this comparison disparaging to royal dignity? Nay, what does it prove at all unless that the royal office is not the apostolic ministry? Besides, though among magisterial offices themselves there are different forms, there is no difference in this respect, that they are all to be received by us as ordinances of God. For Paul includes all together when he says that, quote, There is no power but of God, unquote, and that which was by no means the most pleasing of all was honored with the highest testimonial, I mean the power of one. This is carrying with it the public servitude of all, except the one whose despotic will, all the subject, was anciently disrelished by heroic and more excellent natures. But Scripture, to obviate these unjust judgments, affirms expressly that it is by divine wisdom that, quote, kings reign, unquote, and give special command, quote, to honor the king, unquote. 1 Peter 2, verse 17. Section 8. And certainly it were a very idle occupation for private men to discuss what would be the best form of polity in a place where they live, saying these deliberations cannot have any influence in determining any public matter then the thing itself could not be defined absolutely without rashness, since the nature of the discussion depends on circumstances. And if you compare the different states with each other without regard to circumstances, it is not easy to determine which of these has the advantage in point of utility, so equal are the terms on which they meet. Monarchy is prone to tyranny. In an aristocracy, again, the tendency is not less to the faction of a few, while in popular ascendancy there is the strongest tendency to sedition. When these three forms of government, of which philosophers treat, are considered in themselves, I, for my part, am far from denying that the form which greatly surpasses the others is aristocracy, either pure or modified by popular government, not indeed in itself, but because it very rarely happens that kings so rule themselves as never to dissent from what is just and right, or are possessed of so much acuteness and prudence as always to see correctly. Owing, therefore, to the vices or defects of men, it is safer and more tolerable than several bare rule, that they may thus mutually assist, instruct, and admonish each other, and should any one be disposed to go too far, the others are censors and masters to curb his excess. 
This has already been proved by experience and confirmed also by the authority of the Lord himself when he established an aristocracy bordering on popular government among the Israelites, keeping them under that as the best form until he exhibited an image of the Messiah in David. And as I willingly admit that there is no kind of government happier than where liberty is framed with becoming moderation and duly constituted so as to be durable, so I deem those very happy who are permitted to enjoy that form and I admit that they do nothing at variance with their duty when they strenuously and constantly labor to preserve and maintain it. Nay, even magistrates ought to do their utmost to prevent the liberty of which they have been appointed guardians from being impaired, far less violated. If in this they are sluggish or little careful, they are perfidious traitors to their office and their country. But should those to whom the Lord has assigned one form of government take it upon them anxiously to long for a change, the wish would not only be foolish and superfluous, but very pernicious. If you fix your eyes not on one state merely, but look around the world, or at least direct your view to the regions widely separated from each other, you will perceive that divine providence has not, without good cause, arranged that different countries should be governed by different forms of polity. For as only elements of unequal temperature adhere together, so in different regions a similar inequality in the form of government is best. All this, however, is said unnecessarily to those to whom the will of God is a sufficient reason. For if it has pleased him to appoint kings over kingdoms, and senates or burgomasters over free states, whatever be the form which he has appointed in the places in which we live, our duty is to obey and submit. Section 9. The duty of magistrates, its nature as described by the word of God and the things in which it consists, I will here indicate in passing. That it extends to both tables of the law, did scripture not teach, we might learn from profane writers. For no man has discoursed of the duty of magistrates, the enacting of laws, and the common will without beginning with religion and divine worship. Thus all have confessed that no polity can be successfully established unless piety be its first care, and that those laws are absurd which disregard the rights of God and consult only for men. Saying then that among philosophers religion holds the first place, and that the same thing has always been observed with the universal consent of nations, Christian princes and magistrates may be ashamed of their heartlessness if they make it not to their care. We have already shown that this office is specially assigned them by God, and indeed it is right that they exert themselves in asserting and defending the honor of them whose vicegerents they are and by whose favor they rule. Hence in scripture only kings are especially praised for restoring the worship of God when corrupted or overthrown, or for taking care that religion flourished under them in purity and safety. On the other hand, the sacred history sets down anarchy among the vices, when it states that there was no king in Israel and therefore everyone did as he pleased. Judges 21 verse 25 This rebukes the folly of those who would neglect the care of divine things and devote themselves merely to the administration of justice among men as if God had appointed rulers in his own name to decide earthly controversies and omitted what was of far greater moment his own pure worship as prescribed by his law. Such views are adopted by turbulent men who, in their eagerness to make all kinds of innovations with impunity, would fain get rid of all the vindicators of violated piety. In regard to the second table of the law, Jeremiah addresses rulers, quote, Thus saith the Lord, Execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor. And do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood, unquote. Jeremiah 22, verse 3. To the same effect is the exhortation in the psalm, quote, Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked, unquote. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4. Moses also declared to the princes whom he had substituted for himself, quote, Hear the causes between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment, but ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's." Unquote. Deuteronomy 1, verse 16. I say nothing as to such passages as these. Quote, he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. Unquote. Quote, Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Unquote. Quote, he shall write him a copy of this law in the book. Unquote. 
Quote, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, unquote. Quote, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, unquote. Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 through 20. In here explaining the duties of magistrates, my exposition is intended not so much for the instruction of magistrates themselves as to teach others why there are magistrates and to what end they have been appointed by God. We say, therefore, that they are the ordained guardians and vindicators of public innocence, modesty, honor, and tranquility, so that it should be their only study to provide for the common peace and safety. Of these things, David declares that he will set an example when he shall have ascended the throne. Quote, a froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Who so privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. Unquote. Psalm 101, verses 4 through 6. But as rulers cannot do this unless they protect the good against the injuries of the bad, and give aid and protection to the oppressed, they are armed with power to curb manifest evildoers and criminals, by whose misconduct the public tranquility is disturbed or harassed. For we have full experience of the truth of Salon saying that all public matters depend on reward and punishment, that where these are wanting the whole discipline of states totters and falls to pieces. For in the minds of many the love of equity and justice grows cold, if due honor be not paid to virtue, and the licentiousness of the wicked cannot be restrained without strict discipline and the infliction of punishment. The two things are comprehended by the prophet when he enjoins kings and other rulers to execute, quote, judgment and righteousness, unquote. Jeremiah 21, verse 12, and 22, verse 3. It is righteousness, justice, to take charge of the innocent, to defend and avenge them, and set them free. It is judgment to withstand the audacity of the wicked, to repress their violence, and to punish their faults. Section 10. But here is a difficult, and, as it seems, a perplexing question arises. If all Christians are forbidden to kill, and the prophet predicts concerning the holy mountain of the Lord, that is, the church, quote, they shall not hurt or destroy, unquote, how can magistrates be at once pious and yet shudders of blood? But if we understand that the magistrate, in inflicting punishment, acts not of himself, but executes the very judgments of God, we shall be disencumbered of every doubt. The law of the Lord forbids to kill. But that murder may not go unpunished. The lawgiver himself puts the sword into the hands of his ministers, that they may employ it against all murderers. It belongs not to the pious to afflict and hurt, but to avenge the afflictions of the pious at the command of God is neither to afflict nor hurt. I wish it could always be present to our mind that nothing is done here by the rashness of man, but all in obedience to the authority of God. When it is the guide, we never stray from the right path, unless indeed divine justice is to be placed under restraint and not allowed to take punishment on crimes. But if we dare not give the law to it, why should we bring a charge against its ministers? Quote, he beareth not the sword in vain, unquote, says Paul. Quote, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath on him that doeth evil. Unquote. Romans 13, verse 4. Wherefore, if princes and other rulers know that nothing will be more acceptable to God than their obedience, let them give themselves to this service if they are desirous to improve their piety, justice, and integrity to God. This was the feeling of Moses. Exodus 2, verse 12. Acts 7, verse 21. Exodus 32, verse 26, 1 Kings 2, verse 5, Psalm 101, verse 8, and 45, verse 8. When recognizing himself as destined to deliver his people by the power of the Lord, he laid violent hands on the Egyptian and afterwards took vengeance on the people for sacrilege by slaying 3,000 of them in one day. This was the feeling of David also when towards the end of his life he ordered his son Solomon to put Joab and Shimei to death. Hence also in an enumeration of the virtues of a king, one is to cut off the wicked from the earth and banish all workers of iniquity from the city of God. To the same effect is the praise which is bestowed on Solomon. Quote, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Unquote. How is it that the meek and gentle temper of Moses becomes so exasperated that, besmeared and reeking with the blood of his brethren, he runs through the camp making new slaughter? How is it that David, who during his whole life showed so much mildness almost at his last breath, leaves with his son the bloody testament not to allow the gray hairs of Joab and Shimei to go to the grave in peace, 
both by their sternness sanctified the hands which they would have polluted by showing mercy inasmuch as they executed the vengeance committed to them by God Solomon says Proverbs 16 verse 12 and 20 verse 26 and 25 verses 4 and 5 and 17 verse 15 and 17 verse 14 and 24 verse 24 quote it is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness for the throne is established by righteousness unquote again quote a king that sitteth in the throne of judgment scattereth away all evil with his eyes unquote Again, quote, a wise king scattereth the wicked and bringeth the wheel over them, unquote. Again, quote, take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Take away the wicked men from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness, unquote. Again, quote, he that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord, unquote. Again, quote, an evil man seeketh only rebellion, therefore an evil messenger shall be sent against him, unquote. Again, quote, he that saith unto the wicked, Thou art righteous, him shall the people curse, nations shall abhor him, unquote. Now, if it is true justice in them to pursue the guilty and impious with drawn sword, to sheathe the sword, and keep their hands pure from blood, while nefarious men wade through murder and slaughter so far from redounding to the praise of their goodness and justice, would be to incur the guilt of the greatest impiety, provided always they eschew reckless and cruel asperity in that tribunal which may be justly termed a rock on which the accused must founder. For I am not one of those who would either favor an unseasonable severity or think that any tribunal could be accounted just that is not presided over by mercy, that best and surest counselor of kings and, as Solomon declares, quote, upholder of the throne, unquote, Proverbs 20, verse 28. This, as was truly said by one of old, should be the primary endowment of princes. The magistrate must guard against both extremes. He must neither by excessive severity, rather wound than cure, nor by superstitious affectation of clemency, fall into the most cruel inhumanity by giving way to soft and dissolute indulgence to the destruction of many. It was well said by one under the empire of Nerva, It is indeed a bad thing to live under a prince with whom nothing is lawful but a much worse to live under one with whom all things are lawful. Section 11. As it is sometimes necessary for kings and states to take up arms in order to execute public vengeance, the reason assigned furnishes us with the means of estimating how far the wars which are thus undertaken are lawful. For if power has been given them to maintain the tranquility of their subjects, repress the seditious movements of the turbulent, assist those who are violently oppressed, and animadvert on crimes, can they use it more opportunely than in repressing the fury of him who disturbs both the ease of individuals and the common tranquility of all, who excites seditious tumult, and perpetrates acts of violent oppression and gross wrongs? If it becomes them to be the guardians and maintainers of the laws, they must repress the attempts of all alike by whose criminal conduct the discipline of the laws is impaired. Nay, if they justly punish those robbers whose injuries have been afflicted only on a few, Will they allow the whole country to be robbed and devastated with impunity, since it makes no difference whether it is by a king or by the lowest of the people that a hostile and devastating inroad is made into a district over which they have no authority, all alike are to be regarded and punished as robbers. Natural equity and duty, therefore, demand that princes be armed not only to repress private crimes by judicial inflections, but to defend the subjects committed to their guardianship whenever they are hostilely assailed. Such even the Holy Spirit in many passages of Scripture declares to be lawful. Section 12. But if it is objected that in the New Testament there is no passage or example teaching that war is lawful for Christians, I answer first that the reason for carrying on war, which anciently existed, still exists in the present day, and that, on the other hand, there is no ground for debarring magistrates from the defense of those under them. And secondly, that in the apostolical writings, we are not to look for a distinct exposition of those matters, their object being not to form a civil polity, but to establish the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Lastly, that there also it is indicated in passing that our Savior, by his advent, made no change in this respect. For, to use the words of Augustine, quote, If Christian discipline condemned all wars, when the soldiers asked counsel as to the way of salvation, they would have been told to cast away their arms and withdraw altogether from military service. Whereas it was said, Luke 3, verse 14, 
concuss no one, do injury to no one, be contented with your pay. Those whom he orders to be contented with their pay, he certainly does not forbid to serve, unquote. But all magistrates must here be particularly cautious not to give way to the slightest degree to their passions. Or rather, whether punishments are to be inflicted, they must not be borne headlong by anger, nor hurried away by hatred, nor burned with implacable severity. They must, as Augustine says, quote, even pity a common nature in him in whom they punish an individual fault, unquote. Or whether they have to take up arms against an enemy that is an armed robber, they must not readily catch at the opportunity, nay, they must not take it when offered, unless compelled by the strongest necessity. For if we are to do far more than that heathen demanded who wished war to appear as desired peace, assuredly all other means must be tried before having recourse to arms. In fine, in both cases they must not allow themselves to be carried away by any private feeling, but to be guided solely by regard for the public. Acting otherwise, they wickedly abuse their power, which was given them, not for their own advantage, but for the good and service of others. On this right of war depends the right of garrisons, leagues, and other civil munitions. By garrisons I mean those which are stationed in states for defense of the frontiers. By leagues the alliances which are made by neighboring princes on the ground that if any disturbance arise within their territories, they will mutually assist each other and combine their forces to repel the common enemies of the human race. Under civil munitions I include everything pertaining to the military art. Section 13. Lastly, we think it proper to add that taxes and imposts are the legitimate revenues of princes which they are chiefly to employ in sustaining the public burdens of their office. These, however, they may use for the maintenance of their domestic state, which is in a manner combined with the dignity of the authority which they exercise. Thus we see that David, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat, and other holy kings, Joseph also, and Daniel, in proportion to the office which they sustained, without offending piety, expended liberally of the public funds. And we read in Ezekiel that a very large extent of territory was assigned to kings. Ezekiel 48, verse 21. In that passage, indeed, he is depicting the spiritual kingdom of Christ, but still he borrows his representation from lawful dominion among men. Princes, however, must remember in their turn that their revenues are not so much private chests as treasuries of the whole people. This, Paul testifies, Romans 8, verse 6, which they cannot, without manifest injustice, squander or dilapidate, or rather, that they are almost the blood of the people, which it were the harshest in humanity not to spare. They should also consider that their levies and contributions and other kinds of taxes are merely subsidies of the public necessity, and that it is tyrannical rapacity to harass the poor people with them without cause. These things do not stimulate princes to profusion and luxurious expenditure. There is certainly no need to inflame the passions when they are already of their own accord inflamed more than enough. But seeing it is of the greatest consequence that, whatever they venture to do, they should do with a pure conscience. It is necessary to teach them how far they can lawfully go, lest, by impious confidence, they incur the divine displeasure. Nor is this doctrine superfluous to private individuals, that they may not rashly and petulantly stigmatize the expenditure of princes, though it should exceed the ordinary limits. Section 14. In states, the thing next in importance to the magistrates is laws. The strongest sinews of government are, as Cicero calls them after Plato, the soul without which the office of the magistrate cannot exist, just as, on the other hand, laws have no vigor without the magistrate. Hence, nothing could be said more truly than that the law is a dumb magistrate, the magistrate of a living law. As I have undertaken to describe the laws by which Christian polity is to be governed, there is no reason to expect from me a long discussion on the best kinds of laws. The subject is of vast extent and belongs not to this place. I will only briefly observe in passing what the laws are which may be piously used with reference to God and duly administered among men. This I would rather have passed in silence were I not aware that many dangerous errors are here committed. For there are some who deny that any commonwealth is rightly framed which neglects the law of Moses and is ruled by the common law of nations. How perilous and seditious these views are, let others see. For me it is enough to demonstrate that they are stupid and false. We must attend to the well-known division which distributes the whole law of God as promulgated by Moses into the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial law, and we must attend to each of these parts in order to understand how far they do or do not pertain to us. 
Meanwhile, let no one be moved by the thought that the judicial and ceremonial laws relate to morals. For the ancients who adopted this division, though they were not unaware that the two latter classes had to do with morals, did not give them the name of moral because they might be changed and abrogated without affecting morals. They gave this name specially to the first class, without which true holiness of life and an immutable rule of conduct cannot exist. Section 15. The moral law then, to begin with it, being contained under two heads, the one of which simply enjoins us to worship God with pure faith and piety, the other to embrace men with sincere affection, is the true and eternal rule of righteousness prescribed to the men of all nations and of all times, who would frame their life agreeably to the will of God. For his eternal and immutable will is that we are all to worship him and mutually love one another. The ceremonial law of the Jews was a tutelage by which the Lord was pleased to exercise, as it were, the childhood of that people until the fullness of time should come, when he was fully to manifest his wisdom to the world and exhibit the reality of those things which were then adumbrated by figures. Galatians 3, verse 24 and 4, verse 4. The judicial law given them as a kind of polity delivered certain forms of equity and justice by which they might live together innocently and quietly. And as that exercise and ceremonies properly pertained to the doctrine of piety, inasmuch as it kept the Jewish church in the worship and religion of God, yet was still distinguishable from piety itself, so the judicial form, though it looked only to the best method of preserving that charity which is enjoined by the eternal law of God, was still something distinct from the precept of love itself. Therefore, as ceremonies might be abrogated without at all interfering with piety, so also when these judicial arrangements are removed, the duties and precepts of charity can still remain perpetual. But if it is true that each nation has been left at liberty to enact the laws which it judges to be beneficial, still these are always to be tested by the rule of charity, so that while they vary in form, they must proceed on the same principle. Those barbarous and savage laws, for instance, which conferred honor on thieves, allowed the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, and other things even fouler and more absurd, I do not think entitled to be considered as laws, since they are not only altogether abhorrent to justice, but to humanity and civilized life. Section 16. What I have said will become plain if we attend, as we ought, to two things connected with all laws, viz. the enactment of the law, and the equity on which the enactment is founded and rests. Equity, as it is natural, cannot be the same in all, and therefore ought to be proposed by all laws according to the nature of the thing enacted. As constitutions have some circumstances on which they partly depend, there is nothing to prevent their diversity, provided they all alike aim at equity as their end. Now, as it is evident that the law of God, which we call moral, is nothing else than the testimony of natural law, and of that conscience which God has engraven on the minds of men, the whole of this equity of which we now speak is prescribed in it. Hence it alone ought to be the aim, the rule, and the end of all laws. Wherever laws are formed after this rule, directed to this aim and restricted to this end, there is no reason why they should be disapproved by us, however much they may differ from the Jewish law or from each other. The law of God forbids to steal. The punishment appointed for theft and the civil polity of the Jews may be seen in Exodus 22. Very ancient laws of other nations punished theft by enacting the double of what was stolen, while subsequent laws made a distinction between theft manifest and not manifest. Other laws went the length of punishing with exile, or with branding, while others made the punishment capital. Among the Jews, the punishment of the false witness was to, quote, do unto him as he had thought to have done with his brother, unquote. Deuteronomy 19, verse 19. In some countries the punishment is infamy, in others hanging, in others crucifixion. All laws alike avenge murder with blood, but the kinds of death are different. In some countries adultery was punished more severely, in others more leniently. Yet we see that amidst this diversity they all tend to the same end, for they all with one mouth declare against those crimes which are condemned by the eternal law of God, these murder, theft, adultery, and false witness, though they agree not as to the mode of punishment. This is not necessary, nor even expedient. There may be a country which, if murder were not visited with fearful punishments, would instantly become a prey to robbery and slaughter. There may be an age required that the severity of punishment should be increased. If the state is in troubled condition, 
those things from which disturbances usually arise must be corrected by new edicts. In time of war, civilization would disappear amid the noise of arms were not men overawed by an unwanted severity of punishment. In sterility, in pestilence, were not stricter discipline employed, all things would grow worse. One nation might be more prone to a particular vice were it not most severely repressed. How malignant were it, and invidious of the public good, to be offended at this diversity, which is admirably adapted to retain the observance of the divine law. The allegation that insult is offered to the law of God enacted by Moses, where it is abrogated and other new laws are preferred to it, is most absurd. Others are not preferred when they are more approved, not absolutely, but from regard to time and place, and the condition of the people are when these things are abrogated, which were never enacted for us. The Lord did not deliver it by the hand of Moses to be promulgated in all countries and to be everywhere enforced. But having taken the Jewish nation under his special care, patronage, and guardianship, he was pleased to be specially its legislator, and as became a wise legislator, he had special regard to it in enacting laws. Section 17. It now remains to see, as was proposed in the last place, what use the common society of Christians derive from laws, judicial proceedings, and magistrates. With this is connected another question, viz., what difference ought private individuals to pay to magistrates, and how far ought obedience to proceed? To very many it seems that among Christians the office of magistrate is superfluous, because they cannot piously implore his aid, inasmuch as they are forbidden to take revenge, cite before a judge, or go to law. But when Paul, on the contrary, clearly declares that he is the minister of God to us for good, Romans 13, verse 4, we thereby understand that he was so ordained of God that being defended by his hand and aid against the dishonesty and injustice of wicked men, we may live quiet and secure. But if he would have been appointed over us in vain unless we were to use his aid, it is plain that it cannot be wrong to appeal to it and implore it. Here, indeed, I have to do with two classes of men, for there are very many who boil with such a rage for litigation that they never can be quiet with themselves unless they are fighting with others. Lawsuits they prosecute with the bitterness of deadly hatred and with an insane eagerness to hurt and revenge, and they persist in them with implacable obstinacy even to the ruin of their adversary. Meanwhile, that they may be thought to do nothing but what is legal, they use this pretext of judicial proceedings as a defense of their perverse conduct. But if it is lawful for brother to litigate with brother, it does not follow that it is lawful to hate him and obstinately pursue him with a furious desire to do him harm. Section 18. That such persons then understand that judicial proceedings are lawful to him who makes a right use of them, and the right use both for the pursuer and for the defender is for the latter to assist himself on the day appointed and without bitterness urge what he can in his defense, but only with the desire of justly maintaining his right, and for the pursuer, when undeservedly attacked in his life or fortunes, to throw himself upon the protection of the magistrate state his complaint, and demand what is just and good, while far from any wish to hurt or take vengeance, far from bitterness or hatred, far from the ardor of strife, he is rather disposed to yield and suffer somewhat than to cherish hostile feelings towards his opponent. On the contrary, when minds are filled with malevolence, corrupted by envy, burning with anger, breeding revenge, or in fine, so inflamed by the heat of the contest that they in some measures lay aside charity, the whole pleading, even of the justice cause, cannot but be impious. For it ought to be an axiom among all Christians that no plea, however equitable, can be rightly conducted by anyone who does not feel as kindly towards his opponent as if the matter in dispute were amicably transacted and arranged. Someone, perhaps, may here break in and say that such moderation in judicial proceedings is so far from being seen that an instance of it would be a kind of prodigy. I confess that in these times it is rare to meet with an example of an honest litigant, but the thing itself, untainted by the accession of evil, ceases not to be good and pure. When we hear that the assistance of the magistrate is a sacred gift from God, we ought the more carefully to beware of polluting it by our fault. Section 19. Let those who distinctly condemn all judicial distinction know that they repudiate the holy ordinance of God, and one of those gifts which to the pure are pure, unless indeed they would charge Paul with a crime. Acts 22 and 24 verse 12 and 26 verse 37 and 22 verse 25 and 25 verse 10 
Leviticus 19, verse 18, Matthew 5, verse 39, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, and Romans 12, verse 19, because he repelled the calumnies of his accusers, exposing their craft and wickedness, and at the tribunal claimed for himself the privilege of a Roman citizen, appealing when necessary from the governor to Caesar's judgment seat. There is nothing contrary to this in the prohibition which binds all Christians to refrain from revenge, a feeling which we drive far away from all Christian tribunals. For whether the action be of a civil nature, he only takes the right course who, with innocuous simplicity, commits his cause to the judge as the public protector without any thought of returning evil for evil, which is the feeling of revenge, or whether the action is of a graver nature, directed against a capital offense. The accuser required is not one who comes into court carried away by some feeling of revenge or resentment from some private injury, but one whose only object is to prevent the attempts of some bad men to injure the common weal. But if you take away the vindictive mind, you offend in no respect against that command which forbids Christians to indulge revenge. But they are not only forbidden to thirst for revenge, they are also enjoined to wait for the hand of the Lord, who promises that he will be the avenger of the oppressed and afflicted. But those who call upon a magistrate to give assistance to themselves or others anticipate the vengeance of the heavenly judge. By no means, for we are to consider that the vengeance of the magistrate is the vengeance not of man, but of God, which, as Paul says, he exercises by the ministry of man for our good. Romans 13, verse 8. Section 20. No more are we at variance with the words of Christ, who forbids us to resist evil, and adds, quote, Whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also, unquote. Matthew 5, verses 39 and 40. He would have the minds of his followers to be so abhorrent to everything like retaliation that they would sooner allow the injury to be doubled than desire to repay it. From this patience we do not dissuade them, for verily Christians were to be a class of men born to endure affronts and injuries and to be exposed to the iniquity, imposture, and derision of abandoned men, and not only so, but were to be tolerant of all these evils, that is, so composed in the whole frame of their minds that, on receiving one offense, they were to prepare themselves for another, promising themselves nothing during the whole of life but the endurance of a perpetual cross. Meanwhile, they must do good to those who injure them, and pray for those who curse them, and, this is their only victory, strive to overcome evil with good. Romans 12, verses 20 and 21. Thus affected, they will not seek eye for eye and tooth for tooth, as the Pharisees taught their disciples to long for vengeance. But, as we are instructed by Christ, they will allow their body to be mutilated and their goods to be maliciously taken from them, prepared to remit and spontaneously pardon those injuries the moment they have been inflicted. This equity and moderation, however, will not prevent them with entire friendship for their enemies from using the aid of the magistrate for the preservation of their goods, or from zeal for the public interest to call for the punishment of the wicked and pestilential man whom they know nothing will reform but death. All these precepts are truly expounded by Augustine as tending to prepare the just and pious man patiently to sustain the malice of those whom he desires to become good, that he may thus increase the number of the good, not add himself to the number of the bad by imitating their wickedness. Moreover, it pertains more to the preparation of the heart which is within than to the work which is done openly, that patience and goodwill may be retained within the secret of the heart, and that may be done openly which we see may do good to those to whom we ought to wish well. Section 21. The usual objection that lawsuits are universally condemned by Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 6, is false. It may easily be understood from his words that a rage for litigation prevailed in the church of Corinth to such a degree that they exposed the gospel of Christ and the whole religion which they professed to the calumnies and cavils of the ungodly. Paul rebukes them, first, for traducing the gospel to unbelievers by the intemperance of their dissensions, and secondly, for so striving with each other while they were brethren. For so far were they from bearing injury from another, that they greedily coveted each other's effects, and voluntarily provoked and injured them. He inveighs therefore against that madness for litigation, and not absolutely against all kinds of disputes. He declares it to be altogether a vice or infirmity, that they do not submit to the loss of their effects, rather than strive even to contention in preserving them, in other words, saying they were so easily moved by every kind of loss, and on every occasion, however slight, 
ran off to the forum and to lawsuits. He says that in this way they showed that they were of too irritable a temper and not prepared for patience. Christians should always feel disposed rather to give up part of their right than to go into court, out of which they could scarcely come without a troubled mind, a mind inflamed with hatred of their brother. But when one sees that his property, the one of which he would grievously feel, he is able without any loss of charity to defend, if he should do so, he offends in no respect against that passage of Paul. In short, as we said at first, every man's best adviser is charity. Everything in which we engage without charity and all the disputes which carry us beyond it are unquestionably unjust and impious. Section 22. The first duty of subjects towards their rulers is to entertain the most honorable views of their office, recognizing it as a delegated jurisdiction from God, and on that account receiving and reverencing them as the ministers and ambassadors of God. For you will find some who show themselves very obedient to magistrates, and would be unwilling that there should be no magistrates to obey, because they know this is expedient for the public good. And yet the opinion which those persons have of magistrates is that they are a kind of necessary evils. But Peter requires something more of us when he says, quote, Honor the king, unquote, 1 Peter 2, verse 17. And Solomon, when he says, quote, My son, fear thou the Lord and the king, unquote, Proverbs 24, verse 21. For under the term honor, the former includes a sincere and candid esteem, and the latter, by joining the king with God, shows that he is invested with a kind of sacred veneration and dignity. We have also the remarkable injunction of Paul, quote, Be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake, unquote. Romans 13, verse 5. By this he means that subjects in submitting to princes and governors are not to be influenced merely by fear, just as those submit to an armed enemy who see vengeance ready to be executed if they resist. But because the obedience which they yield is rendered to God himself, inasmuch as their power is from God, I speak not of the men as if the mask of dignity could cloak folly, or cowardice, or cruelty, or wicked, or flagitious manners, and thus acquire for vice the praise of virtue. But I say that the station itself is deserving of honor and reverence, and that those who rule should, in respect of their office, be held by us in esteem and veneration. Section 23. From this, a second consequence is that we must with ready minds prove our obedience to them, whether in complying with edicts, are in paying tribute, are in undertaking public offices and burdens, which relate to the common defense, are in executing any other orders. Quote, let every soul, unquote, says Paul, quote, be subject unto the higher powers, unquote. Quote, whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, unquote. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Writing to Titus, he says, quote, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, unquote. Titus 3, verse 1. Peter also says, quote, Submit yourselves to every human creature, unquote, or rather, as I understand it, quote, ordinance of man, unquote, quote, for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well, unquote. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Moreover, to testify that they do not feign subjection, but are sincerely and cordially subject. Paul adds that they are to commend the safety and prosperity of those under whom they live to God. Quote, I exhort, therefore, unquote, says he, quote, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, unquote. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. Let no man here deceive himself, since we cannot resist the magistrate without resisting God. For although an unarmed magistrate may seem to be despised with impunity, yet God is armed, and will signally avenge this contempt. Under this obedience I comprehend the restraint which private men ought to impose on themselves in public, not interfering with public business, or rashly encroaching on the province of the magistrate, or attempting anything at all of a public nature. If it is proper that anything in a public ordinance should be corrected, let them not act tumultuously, or put their hands to a work where they ought to feel that their hands are tied, but let them leave it to the cognizance of the magistrate whose hand alone here is free. My meaning is, let them not dare to do it without being ordered, for when the command of the magistrate is given, they too are invested with public authority. For as, according to the common saying, the eyes and ears of the prince are his counselors, 
so one may not improperly say that those who, by his command, have the charge of managing affairs are his hands. Section 24. As we have hitherto described the magistrate who truly is what he is called, viz., the father of his country, and, as the poet speaks, the pastor of the people, the guardian of peace, the president of justice, the vindicator of innocence, he is justly to be deemed a madman who disapproves of such authority. And since in almost all ages we see that some princes, careless about all their duties on which they ought to have been intent, live without solicitude and luxurious sloth, others, bent on their own interest, vainly prostitute all rights, privileges, judgments, and enactments, others pillage poor people of their money and afterwards squander it in insane largesses, others act as mere robbers, pillaging houses, violating matrons, and slaying the innocent. Many cannot be persuaded to recognize such persons for princes, whose command as far as lawful they are bound to obey. For while in this unworthy conduct and among atrocities so alien, not only from the duty of the magistrate but also of the man, that he hold no appearance of the image of God, which ought to be conspicuous in the magistrate, while they see not a vestige of that minister of God, who was appointed to be a praise to the good and a terror to the bad, they cannot recognize the ruler whose dignity and authority Scripture recommends to us. And undoubtedly the natural feelings of the human mind has always been not less to assail tyrants with hatred and execration than to look up to just kings with love and veneration. Section 25 But if we have respect to the word of God, it will lead us farther and make us subject not only to the authority of those princes who honestly and faithfully perform their duty toward us, but all princes, by whatever means they have so become, although there is nothing they less perform than the duty of princes. For though the Lord declares that a ruler to maintain our safety is the highest gift of his beneficence, and prescribes to rulers themselves their proper sphere, he at the same time declares that of whatever description they may be, they derive their power from none but him. Those indeed who rule for the public good are true examples and specimens of his beneficence, while those who domineer unjustly and tyrannically are raised up by him to punish the people for their iniquity. Still all alike possess that sacred majesty with which he has invested lawful power. I will not proceed further without subjoining some distinct passages to this effect. Job 34 verse 30, Hosea 13 verse 11, Isaiah 3 verse 4, and 10 verse 5, Deuteronomy 28 verse 29. We need not labor to prove that an impious king is a mark of the Lord's anger, since I presume no one will deny it, and that this is not less true of a king than of a robber who plunders your goods, an adulterer who defiles your bed, and an assassin who aims at your life, since all such calamities are classed by Scripture among the curses of God. But let us insist at greater length in proving what does not so easily fall in with the views of men, that even an individual of the worst character, one most unworthy of all honor, if invested with public authority, receives that illustrious divine power which the Lord has by his word devolved on the ministers of his justice and judgment, and that, accordingly, in so far as public obedience is concerned, he is to be held in the same honor and reverence as the best of kings. Section 26 and, first, I would have the reader carefully to attend to that divine providence which, not without cause, is so often set before us in Scripture, and that special act of distributing kingdoms and setting up as kings whomsoever he pleases. In Daniel it is said, quote, He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. Unquote. Daniel 2, verses 21 and 37. Again, quote, that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, unquote. Daniel 4, verses 17 and 25. Similar sentiments occur throughout Scripture, but they abound particularly in the prophetical books. What kind of king Nebuchadnezzar, he who stormed Jerusalem, was, is well known. He was an active invader and devastator of other countries. Yet the Lord declares in Ezekiel, that he had given him the land of Egypt as his hire for the devastation which he had committed. Daniel also said to him, quote, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Unquote. Daniel 2, verses 37 and 38. Again, he says to his son Belshazzar, quote, The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom, and majesty, and glory, and honor. 
and for the majesty that he gave him all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, unquote. Daniel 5, verses 18 and 19. When we hear that the king was appointed by God, let us at the same time call to mind those heavenly edicts as to honoring and fearing the king, and we shall have no doubt that we are to view the most iniquitous tyrant as occupying the place with which the Lord has honored him. When Samuel declared to the people of Israel what they would suffer from their kings, he said, quote, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots, and he will appoint him captains over thousands, and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war, and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields, and your vineyards, and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed, and of your vineyards, and give to his officers, and to his servants. And he will take your men servants, and your maid servants, and your goodliest young men, and your asses, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants." Unquote. 1 Samuel 8, verses 11-17 Certainly these things could not be done legally by kings whom the law trained most admirably to all kinds of restraint, but it was called justice in regard to the people because they were bound to obey and could not lawfully resist, as if Samuel had said, To such a degree will kings indulge in tyranny, which it will not be for you to restrain. The only thing remaining for you will be to receive their commands and be obedient to their words. Section 27 but the most remarkable and memorable passage is in Jeremiah. Though it is rather long, I am not indisposed to quote it, because it most clearly settles this whole question. Quote, I have made the earth, the man, and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him, and his son, and his son's son, until the very time of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand." Unquote. Jeremiah 27, verses 5-8 through 8. Therefore, quote, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people, and live, unquote. Verse 12 We see how great obedience the Lord was pleased to demand for this dire and ferocious tyrant, for no other reason than just that he held the kingdom. In other words, the divine decree had placed him on the throne of the kingdom, and admitted him to regal majesty, which could not be lawfully violated. If we constantly keep before our eyes and minds the fact that even the most iniquitous kings are appointed by the same decree which establishes all regal authority, we will never entertain the seditious thought that a king is to be treated according to his deserts, and that we are not bound to act the part of good subjects to him who does not in his turn act the part of a king to us. Section 28 It is vain to object that that command was specially given to the Israelites. For we must attend to the ground on which the Lord places it. Quote, I have given the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar, therefore serve him and live. Unquote. Let us doubt not that on whomsoever the kingdom has been conferred, him we are bound to serve. Whenever God raises anyone to royal honor, he declares it to be his pleasure that he should reign. To this effect we have general declarations in Scripture. Solomon says, quote, For the transgression of a land, many are the princes thereof. Unquote. Proverbs 28, verse 2. Job says, quote, He looseth the bond of kings, and girdeth their loins with a girdle. Unquote. Job 12, verse 18. This being confessed, nothing remains for us but to serve and live. There is in Jeremiah another command in which the Lord thus orders his people, quote, Seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Unquote. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. 
Here the Israelites plundered of all their property, torn from their homes, driven into exile, thrown into miserable bondage, are ordered to pray for the prosperity of the victor, not as we are elsewhere ordered to pray for our persecutors, but that his kingdom may be preserved in safety and tranquility, that they too may live prosperously under him. Thus David, when already king-elect by the ordination of God and anointed with his holy oil, though causelessly and unjustly sailed by Saul, holds the life of one who was seeking his life to be sacred, because the Lord had invested him with royal honor. Quote, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Unquote. Quote, mine eyes spare thee, and I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Unquote. First Samuel 24, verses 6 and 11. Again, quote, who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Unquote. Quote, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. Unquote. 1 Samuel 24, verses 9 through 11. Section 29. This feeling of reverence and even of piety we owe to the utmost to all our rulers, be their characters what they may. This I repeat the oftener, that we may learn not to consider the individuals themselves, but hold it to be enough that by the will of the Lord they sustain a character on which he has impressed an engraven inviolable majesty. But rulers, you will say, owe mutual duties to those under them. This I have already confessed. But if from this you conclude that obedience is to be returned to none but just governors, you reason absurdly. Husbands are bound by mutual duties to their wives and parents to their children. Should husbands and parents neglect their duty, should the latter be harsh and severe to the children whom they are enjoined not to provoke to anger, and by their severity harass them beyond measure, should the former treat with the greatest contumely the wives whom they are enjoined to love and to spare as the weaker vessels, would children be less bound in duty to their parents and wives to their husbands? They are made subject to the froward and undutiful. Nay, since the duty of all is not to look behind them, that is, not to inquire into the duties of one another, but to submit each to his own duty. This ought especially to be exemplified in the case of those who are placed under the power of others. Wherefore, if we are cruelly tormented by a savage, if we are rapaciously pillaged by an avaricious or luxurious, if we are neglected by a sluggish, if, in short, we are persecuted for righteousness' sake by an impious and sacrilegious prince, let us first call up the remembrance of our faults, which doubtless the Lord is chastising by such scourges. In this way, humility will curb our impatience. And let us reflect that it belongs not to us to cure these evils, that all that remains for us is to implore the help of the Lord, in whose hands are the hearts of kings and inclinations of kingdoms. Daniel 9, verse 7, Proverbs 21, verse 1, Psalm 82, verse 1, and 2, verse 10. Isaiah 10, verse 1. Quote, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Unquote. Before his face shall fall and be crushed all kings and judges of the earth who have not kissed his anointed, who have enacted unjust laws to oppress the poor in judgment, and do violence to the cause of the humble, to make widows a prey, and plunder the fatherless. Section 30. Herein is the goodness, power, and providence of God wondrously displayed. At one time he raises up manifest avengers from among his own servants, and gives them his command to punish accursed tyranny, and deliver his people from calamity when they are unjustly oppressed. At another time he employs for this purpose the fury of men who have other thoughts and other aims. Thus he rescued his people Israel from the tyranny of Pharaoh by Moses, from the violence of Jusa, king of Syria, by Othniel, and from other bondage by other kings or judges. Thus he tamed the pride of Tyre by the Egyptians, the insolence of the Egyptians by the Assyrians, the ferocity of the Assyrians by the Chaldeans, the confidence of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus having previously subdued the Medes, while the ingratitude of the kings of Judah and Israel, and their impious contumacy after all his kindness, he subdued and punished, at one time by the Assyrians, at another by the Babylonians. All these things, however, were not done in the same way the former class of deliverers being brought forward by the lawful call of God to perform such deeds when they took up arms against kings did not at all violate that majesty with which kings are invested by divine appointment 
trumpet armed from heaven, they, by a greater power, curb the less, just as kings may lawfully punish their own satraps. The latter class, though they were directed by the hand of God, as seemed to him good, and did his work without knowing it, had naught but evil in their thoughts. Section 31. But whatever may be thought of the acts of the men themselves, the Lord by their means equally executed his own work, when he broke the bloody scepters of insolent kings and overthrew their intolerable dominations. Let princes hear and be afraid, but let us at the same time guard most carefully against spurning or violating the venerable and majestic authority of rulers, an authority which God has sanctioned by the surest edicts, although those invested with it should be most unworthy of it, and as far as in them lies polluted by their iniquity. Although the Lord takes vengeance on unbridled domination, let us not therefore suppose that that vengeance is committed to us to whom no command has been given but to obey and suffer. I speak only of private men, for when popular magistrates have been appointed to curb the tyranny of kings, as the Ephori who were opposed to kings among the Spartans, are tribunes of the people to consuls among the Romans, are demarks to the Senate among the Athenians, and perhaps there is something similar to this in the power exercised in each kingdom by the three orders when they hold their primary diets. So far am I from forbidding these officially to check the undue license of kings, that if they connive at kings when they tyrannize and insult over the humbler of the people, I affirm that their dissimulation is not free from nefarious perfidy, because they fraudulently betray the liberty of the people, while knowing that, by the ordinance of God, they are its appointed guardians. Section 32. But in that obedience which we hold to be due to the commands of rulers, we must always make the exception, nay, must be particularly careful, that it is not incompatible with obedience to him to whose will the wishes of all kings should be subject, to whose decrees their commands must yield, to whose majesty their scepters must bow. And indeed, how preposterous were it in pleasing men to incur the offense of him for whose sake you obey men, the Lord, therefore, is King of Kings. When he opens his sacred mouth, he alone is to be heard, instead of all and above all. We are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, let us not pay the least regard to it, nor be moved by all the dignity which they possess as magistrates, a dignity to which no injury is done when it is subordinated to the special and truly supreme power of God. On this ground... Daniel denies that he had sinned in any respect against the king when he refused to obey his impious decree. Daniel 6, verse 22, because the king had exceeded his limits and not only been injurious to men, but by raising his horn against God had virtually abrogated his own power. On the other hand, the Israelites are condemned for having too readily obeyed the impious edict of the king. For when Jeroboam made the golden calf, they forsook the temple of God, and in submission us to him, revolted to new superstitions. 1 Kings 12, verse 28. With the same facility, posterity had bowed before the decrees of their kings. For this, they are severely upbraided by the prophet. Hosea 5, verse 11. So far is the praise of modesty from being due to that pretense by which flattering courtiers cloak themselves and deceive the simple when they deny the lawfulness of declining anything imposed by their kings as if the Lord had resigned his own rights to mortals by appointing them to rule over their fellows, or as if earthly power were diminished when it is subjected to its author, before whom even the principalities of heaven tremble as suppliants. I know the imminent peril to which subjects expose themselves by this firmness, kings being most indignant when they are contemned. As Solomon says, quote, The wrath of a king is as messengers of death, unquote. Proverbs 16, verse 14. But since Peter, one of heaven's heralds, has published the edict, quote, We ought to obey God rather than men, unquote. Acts 5, verse 29. Let us console ourselves with the thought that we are rendering the obedience which the Lord requires when we endure anything rather than turn aside from piety. And that our courage may not fail, Paul stimulates us by the additional consideration, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23, that we were redeemed by Christ at the great price which our redemption cost him, in order that we might not yield a slavish obedience to the depraved wishes of men, far less do homage to their impiety. End of the Institutes this Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. 
many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.